Wonderful. It is good to be together again, is it not? Not singing, but together, which is always precious. Well, let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles, please, to Colossians chapter 3. You know, we're back in Paul's letter to the Colossians today, and I love Paul's letter to the Colossians. You know, in chapters 1 and 2, Paul tours us around the supremacy of Christ in, in all of life. We see then in those opening chapters how Jesus himself is supreme in personhood. To see Christ is to see God. For in him the fullness of God dwells bodily. He's supreme in creation. For from him and through him and to him are all things made. He's supreme in the church. He was given by the Father as head over the church, his body. And he's even supreme in our reconciliation, is he not? We can sing this morning. Oh, we can't sing, but we can listen to other people singing. Free, free, free. I love that. That's our story. We were dead in our transgressions and sins, far from the Lord, uninterested in the Lord. But in his grace, he came after us on the greatest rescue mission ever told. And now we're forgiven and redeemed and adopted. Heaven is our home and we are completely free. You learn all about that in the opening two chapters of the book of Colossians. And then in chapters 3 and 4, Paul pulls the curtain back on what it means to have Jesus Christ as supreme in our lives. What does it mean to actually bow the knee to Jesus? What does it mean to take him as King of Kings and Lord of Lords over our lives? Well, this morning we're going to be looking at just two verses, verses 18 and 19 of chapter 3. So if you want a title, I've called this message Christ's Supremacy in Marriage. Both of these verses relate to marriage. And so if you're married, obviously I really want to encourage you to lean in. But if you're not married... I want to understand without doubt these verses address you as well. They speak to you. This is God's word. And so let's look together at verses 18 and 19 of Colossians chapter 3. This is the word of the Lord. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives And do not be harsh with them. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to you this morning, what a thrill it is to come to the one who is King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, you are above all. You are first in all things. First in creation. First in personhood. First in the church. Oh, Lord, did you help us to understand then this morning what it looks like to have you as first in our lives? Lord, when we became Christians, we understood that that meant bowing the knee to you. We understood in that moment that our lives were being purchased with a price. Our lives are no longer our own. So, Lord, help us to have ears to hear. And a heart that is humble to listen. And would you receive all the glory. In Jesus name. Amen. You know when it comes to marriage. There is without doubt no shortage of self help books out there. On how to improve your marriage is there not. There are hundreds of the things. 
books on date nights, books on romantic getaways. I was going on Facebook just earlier on, and as you flick through, all these adverts come through. Luxury romantic getaways. As if they're trying to get your attention, because they are. Books on helpful practices, books on love languages. And there is without doubt no shortage of appetite to buy them and read them and seek to apply them in our lives. And yet one of the things that really concerns me about most of the books that are out there on marriage is the reality that so often within them, albeit that they are often Christian in nature, there is more often than not a serious insufficiency of doctrine in them when it comes to God's design for marriage. And that concerns me. And it concerns me because quite simply, doctrine matters. Sinclair Ferguson says it this way. He says, The conviction that Christian doctrine matters is one of the most important growth points of the Christian life. And so it is. That moment when you realize my life is to be directed by this word is one of the biggest growth points in any Christian life. The moment when you realize this is God's word and what I need to bring my life under. It changes everything. You know, that's why in the olden days, if you look at old chapels, often the preacher was like up really high. And you think, why is he up really high? Was he just like, are they always like dwarfs or something? So they have to be high up? No, I'll tell you what it is. He was up high so that when he put his Bible on the pulpit, it was automatically over everybody's heads, whether they're standing or sitting. And so it was designed as a weekly exercise to help everybody present to understand we are all under the authority of God and we're all under the authority of his word. That's what it means to have Christ as supreme in our lives. It means that we don't primarily give ourselves to culture. We give ourselves to this word, this truth, understanding that the truth will set us free. Bruce Millman says it this way. He says, why then is the study of doctrine so vital? Well, firstly, because as a matter of plain fact, every Christian is a theologian. Once we have grasped this, Our duty is to become the best theologians we can be for the glory of God. As our understanding of God and his ways are clarified and deepened through studying the book he has given us for that purpose, the Bible. Secondly, because getting doctrine right is the key to getting everything else right. If we are to know who God is, who we are, and what God wants of us, we need to study scripture. That means it's teaching as a whole, and that means doctrine. This holds true for every single area of the Christian life. Listen, for every point, right living begins with right thinking. That is profound. For at every point, right living begins with right thinking. That is true for all of life. Right living begins with right thinking, which is built on this word. And accordingly, then, it is true in our marriages as well. This word has to be our guide, not primarily culture, but this word is that which will set us free. And when it comes then to marriage, it is clear that in God's word, there are some pretty incredible things said about marriage. I mean, first and foremostly, you examine in God's word, you see God's purpose for marriage. See, marriage is ultimately something that has been designed by God. Marriage was not man's idea. That's why even though our culture feels like it can change it all the time and pull it around, it really can't change it and pull it around because it didn't come from man, it came from God. And God designed marriage 
between a man and a woman as a moving picture and parable of Christ's relationship with the church. That's what it was designed to be, a moving picture and parable of Christ's glorious relationship with the church. Isn't that profound? That your marriage then is designed by God to demonstrate and display the gospel to those around you. And within then marriage, we see not only God's purpose for marriage, but we see a pattern for marriage as well. And so we see that as biblically defined in marriage, there is a quality in value and worth and dignity before the Lord. We're all made in the image of God, and yet, quite clearly, there is also a difference in role. It's one of those moments where our culture screams, No! Any difference in role is not equality! And God looks back quite simply in his word and says, Well, no, I disagree with you. It's possible to be equal in value and worth and dignity, but different in the role you play. And within marriage, it's very clear, as biblically defined, there are two different roles. For the husband, it's the role of headship. He's to use his gifts for, for life as oversight and management and leadership towards his home. And for the lady then as a wife, she's the helper. A role in which she can use all her God-given gifts and abilities and strengths and intelligence to help her husband in any way that she can as, she, as he seeks to lead their home for the glory of God. And what I love about these verses right here in Colossians 3 verses 18 and 19 is what we learn in these two verses is simply this. What we learn is what it looks like to have Christ as supreme in our marriages. What does it really look like for us to bow the knee to him and say, Lord, you've got my life. You are supreme in all things and you are supreme in my life. So, Lord, come into, the, come into my home as well. Examine my marriage. And what you see right here then is how we are to live and operate as a married couple for the glory of God. If you are married, then I want to encourage you, obviously, to be really leaning in in this message. But if you are single, I want to encourage you to be leaning in as well. Why? Well, because we're family. And if we're really going to function as family, we need everybody, don't we? We need people's encouragement. People need prayers. We need people's care at different times. You know, praise God that the Apostle Paul didn't go, you know what, I'm not married, so I'm not going to run a right on it. It's got nothing to do with me. Praise God that he took the time to put down on paper what God was inspiring him to write as a single man, albeit about marriage. We're all needed in this. And by God's grace, for some of you that are single, maybe he will have you getting married as well, which makes this all the more important to you. So I have two points this morning. Two points, one for wives, one for husbands. It's not a complicated message. It's only two verses. But what does it look like to have Christ as supreme in our marriages? That's the overarching question we're going to be asking. What does it actually look like? Well, number one, then, point one, God's instruction to wives. What does it look like for you as wives to have Christ as supreme in your marriage? Verse 18. Wives. Submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. What does it look like then to have Christ as supreme in your marriage? Well, quite simply, it looks like submitting to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. 
You know, submission in culture is so often misunderstood and misrepresented, is it not? For some of you, maybe, even, even this morning, maybe thinking, he's talking about the S word. I don't like that word. It's a bad word. And I remember sitting in a wedding a couple of years ago now. I wasn't actually taking the wedding. I was just sitting in the congregation with my wife. And as the pastor was saying, you know, the, the vows and, and they're repeating them. I just remember the individual using the word submit. You know, I'll submit to you in all things. And, and just watching people's faces around me as if they go, they're just like, did, did she just say submit? Oh, dear, what's going on? It's like a bad word in our culture today. And yet the truth is... Submission is mentioned in the New Testament over 40 times. And in the Bible, it is never something negative. It is something that is to be highly prized before the Lord. And submission is biblically defined then. simply means this. Submission is a voluntary and willing disposition to follow the leadership and responsibility of another. It is the voluntary and willing disposition to follow the leadership and disposition of another. And friends, I want you to understand that each and every one of us in the room are called to submit in different settings at different times. And this is all by divine design. Claire Smith, in her wonderful book, God's Good Design, says it this way. She says, the word submission and all related verbs meaning to submit are often used in the New Testament and in the context of many different types of relationships. So children are to submit to their parents, Luke chapter 2, verse 51. Slaves are to submit to their masters, Titus 2, verse 9. Wives are to submit themselves to their husbands, 1 Corinthians 14, 34 to 35. And Christians are to submit to those over them in Christian leadership, Hebrews 13, verse 17. We are to submit ourselves to God, James 4, verse 7. And as part of that Godward submission, we have to submit to governing authorities, Romans 13, verse 1. However, this language of submission is not just limited to human relationships. All things have been subject to and will ultimately submit to Christ, Ephesians 1, verse 22. Demons submit to the rule of Christ, Luke 10, verse 17. The church is to submit to Christ as her head, Ephesians 5, verse 24. And when all things have been made subject to him, Christ himself will submit to the Father. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 27 to 28. Isn't that incredible? The New Testament is filled with illustration after illustration, command after command about submission to one another at different times. One of the things we have to understand then as we examine the word submission is that submission was God's idea. Okay, we just need to get that real clear, otherwise we end up with real problems. So when we're talking about wifely submission, here's what I want to understand. Ladies, I want you to understand there has not been some global conspiracy here. There's not like Christian husbands across the world have got together and gone, I know, I know what we'll do. We'll make them submit. Okay, that's not happened. That, that, hasn't, that event hasn't taken place. A group of chauvinists have not got together in different pockets of humanity and just decided, let's introduce submission. That's how we'll do it. No, submission was designed and created by God himself. And incredibly, submission then as a disposition is modeled by God himself. You see it in the Godhead. This is the way Dr. Wayne Gruden tells us. 
He says the idea of headship and submission never began. It has always existed in the eternal nature of God himself. And in this most basic of all authority relationships, authority is not based on gifts or abilities. It is just there. The relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one of leadership and authority on the one hand, and voluntary, willing, joyful submission to that authority on the other hand. We can learn from this that submission to a rightful authority is a noble virtue. It is a privilege. It is something good and desirable. It is the virtue that has been demonstrated by the eternal Son of God forever. It is his glory, the glory of the Son, as he relates to his Father. That incredible. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they have always displayed submission. Submission, then, as an idea, did not originate with man. It originated with God. And as a disposition, it is represented in the very character of God. And when it comes, then, to marriage, and understanding God's, what it looks like to have Christ as supreme in marriage, what we learn very clearly in Scripture is that it is the wife's role then to submit to her husband. Here's what that really means. Here's what wifely submission is in a nutshell. It is a wife's voluntary and willing disposition to follow the leadership and responsibility of her husband. Ladies, I want you to understand then, wifely submission does not mean that a wife is in some way less intelligent or less competent than her husband. Negative. I have a wife that is way more intelligent and competent than me. True story. It's a true story. I worked really hard at my exams. I did really well. Emma didn't work very hard at all. Did better than me. You know, it's just the way it is. I've always understood that. My wife is profoundly competent. As you can see here with the Godhead, it's not like Father, Son, and Holy Spirit got together and thought, okay, who's the most gifted one amongst us? Because we should just separate out the roles. No, it's just the way it's been. It's got nothing to do with gifts and abilities. It's got to do with the way he's designed by very nature and always has been. Likewise, wifely submission does not mean that a wife is to be devoid of any and all independent thoughts. Not at all. It's not the wife's responsibility to just agree. I just have to agree with him. I don't know. He's, he's, the, he's the guy. No. A wonderful helper is a wonderful assistant. And a wonderful assistant has her own ideas. I praise God and thank God for Emma's intelligence and gifts and abilities that come to bear on my leadership. It's such a strength and such a help. I so appreciate that. And likewise, wifely submission is not... It does not leave a wife unable or forbidden to challenge or influence her husband. Not at all. I thank God for the way my wife influences me. I praise God for the way my wife challenges me. I praise God for all the different ideas that come to bear on our home and sometimes in our church. Wifely submission does not mean any of those things. But wifely submission does mean a wife's voluntary and willing disposition to follow the leadership and responsibility of her husband. You know, at this point, you often get asked the question, well, are there any exceptions to this? <laughs> we love exceptions, don't we? 
We love to find rules that really don't count to us. As for some of you, you might be thinking, you know, Dave, I hear what you're saying about submission, and I totally agree with you. I mean, it's hard not to agree with you. It's hard not to see it in the Bible. Verse 18, wives, submit to your husbands. Yeah, it's going to be tricky to get out of that, as if to say, oh, that clearly doesn't apply to my life. I mean, it is clear as day what the role of the wife is, the disposition of the wife for the glory of the Lord. So we can ignore that, and we can cut that out and throw that away, but if we're going to live under it, it is as clear as day what it means. But for some of us, it might be like, look, I hear what you're saying, I hear what you're saying, and clearly it is saying the Bible, clearly, but that doesn't mean me, right? That doesn't mean my situation with my husband. Have you met my husband? I mean, there's no way. God would have me submit to him, right? Right? Well, ladies, the Bible has to be our best friend in that. The Bible is always our best friend. We have to sit under God's word. And so let's examine God's word again. Verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. All our answers are right there. And so are there exceptions to this submission that we're called to do before the Lord? Well, yeah, clearly there are. Where a clear issue of sin is at stake, you as wives are called not to follow. That's what it means in verse 18 where it says, as is, as is fitting in the Lord. That's not just a, an illustration of divine design. It's actually also a reminder for wives that ultimately your ultimate head, as it is for your husband, is Christ. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so all submission needs to come under his headship. And so where a husband is leading you astray that is not fitting with the Lord, it is time to say no. So if a husband is leading his wife into sin, if he wants her to be sexually immoral or to cheat on her taxes or lie or steal or to neglect or abuse her children or to forsake and have nothing to do with Christ... That is the time that a wife should say, love, I love you, but no. Because Christ is my king. He's my ultimate authority, and so I can't do that. Likewise, if a husband is sinfully abusing his wife, if she's being abused physically or sexually or psychologically or financially, ladies, that is the time before the Lord, I believe, to call the police. And ideally, call your pastors so we can help you. And we would want to help you. And we would be helping you not by saying, you know, you really should submit to him in this. We would by helping you say, how can we help you get out so we can care for you? And then we send the boys around. But that's a different question. You know, we would want to care for you in every single way if this was the reality of your life. So are there any exceptions to submission? Well, yeah. This submission is to be as is fitting in the Lord. But outside of that reality, wives are called to voluntarily and willingly submit to their husbands, have a disposition to follow their husband's leading. Does that mean that a wife can't challenge her husband's sin and patterns of sin? No, of course you can, and you should. I thank God for the many different ways my wife has come to me over the last 20 years and gone toe-to-toe with me on different things and said, love, I love you, but this is wrong. It needs to be dealt with. And if you want to listen to me, then can we chat to Brendan or Patrick or one of the guys because we need to deal with this. 
I thank the Lord for that. What a suitable and kind helper the Lord has given me. But what I also appreciate is for the last 20 years, what my wife has also modeled is that disposition, a humble and willing disposition to, I want to follow you. I want to follow you. And you know what? I would be a poor pastor to teach you any other way. I'm aware that for so many in our culture, they find verse 18 incredibly offensive. You're asking wives to submit? Oh. I tell you what, it would be a greater offense. A greater offense would be a pastor failing to teach on this word because this is God's word. God is our authority, not our culture. We need to work out we are bound the need to culture or we are bound neither the need to Christ. It is clear in Scripture what a wife is called to do, and I would be a poor pastor to teach you any other way, and I'd be a poor pastor because, quite frankly, I would be then robbing you and your husband of the dynamic and powerful force that your submission can have on his life and on your marriage if you respond in this way. Not my words, but Christ. 1 Peter 3, verse 1. Listen to what the Lord says. He says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. Isn't that amazing? Submission in a marriage is quite clearly a credibly powerful weapon before the Lord. See, if you're here today and you're married to an unbelieving husband, I think this verse should give you great hope. Great hope of winning his heart, not just through sharing the gospel to him, not just by trying to bring him to church and invite him to things, but actually by submitting to him so that he may be one even without a word. He may look at your life and realize there is something really radically different going on in your life. And it can so often play a part of winning him. And if you're married to a believing husband, I think this verse should give you even more hope. Because quite clearly, as a believing husband, the Spirit of Christ lives in his heart to soften his heart. And as you then respond with submission, quite clearly that will be a powerful weapon in the hands of God himself that you may win him without even a word. What does it look like then for Christ to be supreme in our marriages? Well, for wives, it looks like submitting to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. So here's two questions I want you to ask your husband in the, in the next week. Take the time to carve out to ask these questions. And I thank the Lord that you do apply these things in this way because you want to grow. You want to please the Lord. You want to become more like Christ. I respect you all so much. So here's two questions. Number one, if you knew I wouldn't become angry nor be offended... How would you honestly evaluate my submission to and support of your leadership? It's very important that you start with the first bit. If you knew I wouldn't become angry or be offended or cry for a week or be really upset, include whatever it is for you that might be a temptation. Now help me. Help me see myself. And then number two. What is one specific way I can grow in my support of your leadership? 
Ladies, carve out the time in the next week to ask that question. There is nothing you can do, I think, to honor and respect your husband more than by humbly asking those types of questions. It speaks volumes. I think it's Ephesians 5.33, and it just says right at the end, Wives, see that you respect your husband. This is such a respectful thing to do. Of Love, I realize you are the head of my home. You functionally are my pastor. Help me. Help me grow. But for all you men that have been loving the last 20 minutes, it's now your turn because God wants to address you. In verse 19, you might not enjoy this quite so much, but ladies, you're going to have the time of your life. What does it look like to have Christ as supreme in our marriages? Well, here's what it looks like for a husband, which is my second point, God's instruction to husbands. It's all in verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. What does it look like to have Christ as supreme in our marriages as a husband? It looks like loving your wives and not being harsh with them. If there is one word then that really characterizes as biblically defined the husband's role of head and the responsibility that God has given him as head of the home, it is the word love. Tender, gentle, gracious love. See, husbands, God has not called us as husbands to dominate our wives or seek to control our wives, insisting that they should submit to us in everything because that's your job. Now, the moment anything even similar like that is coming out of our mouths is the moment we have to realize we are dominating our wives, and that is anathema before the Lord. Likewise, it's not our job as husbands to take the premise of, you know what, I'm not really doing much spiritually for you, but you know what, I've got a roof over your head and I pay the bills and you've got food on the table, so I'm done. No, that is abdication before the Lord because there is a lot more to the role of husband than just that. You are abdicating. You are, in effect, burying your head in the sand saying, that's all I'm doing. Domination is wrong. Abdication is wrong. What God has called us to do as husbands before the Lord is to use our headship and oversight and leadership to love our wives as Christ loved the church. That's the high and holy calling that is on all husbands before the Lord, to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And if we were to define then in a word what this love is to look like towards our wives, that word would be, Sacrifice. See, in Ephesians 5.25, we have a parallel verse in that book to this one here, Colossians 3, verse 19. And this is what the Apostle Paul says to the Ephesians in chapter 5, verse 25. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for See, what comes into view there is Calvary. It's amazing. See, I preached on that verse last week, and the whole point was helping to see how does Christ feel about the church. He's passionate about it. So much so that he lays his life down for it. But ultimately, that statement is in a bigger statement of how husbands are to love their wives. 
He's giving us a picture of how men are to use their headship and leadership before their wives. What is it to be? It's to be sacrifice. You lay your life down for your wife. What, what a high and holy calling that is, don't you think? It is, it is, it, it is if you're like me, it is intimidatingly high. How am I going to do this? Because my example is the example of Jesus. Carrie Sandham, in a wonderful book, Different by Design, says, if we think humble submission is a tall order for wives, then the command here for husbands is surely no less demanding. In fact, the standard required of them may be even harder. They are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, which means loving them sacrificially, even to the point of giving themselves up for them. As head of the family, they are to nurture, protect, and care for their wives, even if it means dying to protect them from harm. And once again, it is the Lord Jesus himself who provides the perfect model for them to follow. And so he does, does he not? The Lord Jesus gives a perfect example for us to follow. It is the example of him laying his life down for his bride. And the point is, our headship as husbands should be emulative in nature of the sacrifice of the Savior for his bride. Brothers, we are never going to have to die for the sins of our wife. Jesus Christ has done all that. Praise God. He's done all that for her. He's done all that for you. It is the glory of the gospel. And yet in our headship as brothers, the pattern and example of that headship should be emulative in nature of the saviors, namely sacrifice. The role of headship then that God has given us as husbands is to be characterized by love and that love is to be defined by sacrifice. And what I so appreciate about Paul's parallel passage to this one in Ephesians 5 is in Ephesians 5, verses 26 through 29, we then see the purpose of this sacrifice. You see that Jesus Christ laying his life down for a bride, it had a point. And the same way husbands sacrifice for their wife has a point. It's not just, oh, just whatever's. No, it has a purpose. This is the purpose then of the sacrificial love as a husband for a wife. Ephesians 5, verses 26 to 29 It says that he, meaning that he laid his life down for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. This sacrifice then has a point, it has a purpose. What is the purpose? Well, it was to make her holy. Jesus Christ laid his life down for his bride to make her holy. So in the same way, we are to lay our lives down for our wife. Why? So that she may grow in godliness so that she may become more like Jesus. The fruit of our leadership in the home should be a wife that says, I love Jesus more because of your example and your leadership in my life. What a high and holy calling. We are not just called to sacrifice blindly and aimlessly. 
It's not like we can just say, you know what, I sacrifice a ton. I come in from work and I strap the baby to myself and I do all the washing up and then I cook the dinner and then I put all the kids down to bed and I do it every night of the week. I'm sacrificing all the time. Listen, brothers, all those things are good things, but you could do all those things and completely abdicate on your main role. Because your main role is to lead your wife spiritually. To care for her. And to ensure that the fruit of your labors is that she loves Jesus more. That's why it's so important that as husbands we be sacrificing by growing in godliness ourselves. Husbands, you have been entrusted with headship by God. You have been entrusted with a lady who is his daughter. And to exercise that headship, there is nothing more you need than to be growing in godliness yourself. To be reading the Bible yourself. To be giving yourself to prayer. To be giving yourself to understanding. Lord, help me lead my home. Secondarily, it's so important that we be sacrificing by helping to provide time and context for our wife's relationship with the Lord to grow. You know, it's my assessment as I consider the wives of Sovereign Grace Church that without doubt people seem to go from extremely busy to astronomically busy to off the charts busy. I mean, that tends to be the women of Sovereign Grace. There's just like there is profound busyness going on. And husbands, it's our job to get in the monks of that busyness and to craft out time for our wife so that she may grow in godliness, so that she may sit at the feet of Jesus, so that she may spend time with the Lord. There's nothing more that she needs more. She needs your help. She needs your encouragement. She needs your prayers. Sometimes she just needs your practicality. You know, if you are a parent of children, preschool children, everything I've just said times it by like a hundred because she really needs your help. I mean, we used to have a practice in our life. I mean, our days are gone now, which is, oh, thank you, Lord. But when, when we had preschool children, there would be times when at least once a year I would seek to take a day off, one day off, and care for the children for a day. And we would go out for the day from the morning to the night. It was the longest day of my life. I mean, you just cannot believe. How do you do it all? I mean, I've only got two arms. Do you remember that time? Oh, yeah, we want to go into it. But yeah, they, they, we've always had nightmares on this one day a year where this has occurred. And I always come away thinking, I don't know how she does it. I have no idea how she does it. Your respect for your wife will greatly increase when you realize what she does. And you will realize then as a husband, if you are discerning, I need to help my wife create time for Jesus. Otherwise, it ain't going to happen. Husbands, this is your primary call. What can I do in my wife's life to ensure that she is falling more in love with Jesus? We need to sacrifice for that. And we also need to sacrifice by ongoingly nourishing and cherishing our wives. It says it there in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. He says, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. You know, one of the things I love about that piece of scripture is it's kind of humorous in a sense. It's just Paul's realism. I mean, in verse 25, we are surveying Calvary. 
He's saying, listen, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Lay your life down for her. A couple of verses later, it's like, okay, here's the thing. That's our target, plan B. Love her like you love yourself, okay? Just think about the way you care for your own bodies, because I know you boys, you care for your own bodies. You give time to food, you give time to exercise, you give time. You need longer than anybody else in the world, it would appear. So, care for them like you care for yourself. I love Paul's realism. And his point is, listen, you need to nourish and cherish your wife like you nourish and preen and care for yourself. What does it mean then to nourish our wives? How do we do that? Is he talking about cooking a dinner? I mean, what was he talking about? No, he's talking about three things. He's talking about communication, communication, communication. That's what it looks like to nourish your wife. It looks like time and talking. Talking to her about a day, a life. What is she reading? What is she not reading? If you're not reading, why are you not reading? Can I encourage you in something? Do you want a book? I mean, just what can I do to help you? It means talk. It means communication. What is it that guys so often find harder than anything else? It's kind of humorous. Talking. What do ladies often most need? You talking. And then we're called to cherish our wives. And what that means in a nutshell is to make her feel special. Brothers, your wife should understand two things about you more than anything else. She should understand that the apple of your eye is Jesus. And second only to him is her. That's where it all begins. That the greatest thing about you is Jesus. And outside of Jesus, the greatest thing about me is my wife. Brothers, that's what it means to cherish our wives. The role of headship then is to be characterized by love and that love is to be defined by sacrifice. So here, husbands, here's then the question that I want you to ask of yourselves. It's the question I seek to ask of myself as well. It's simply this. What are you and what am I doing each day for our wives that involves sacrifice? What are you doing each and every day for your wife that costs you something. This is where it gets real nitty-gritty and real practical, but it's a practicality we must understand. Jesus Christ laid his life down for his wife, his bride. What are you doing to lay your life down for your wife each and every day? What are you doing each and every day that involves sacrifice? You know, I have married a lady that is completely and utterly out of my league. And that's not hyperbole. It's reality. And if anybody of you, well, most of you know us, if you've hung around with us, you will realize he's not even joking. It's true. I mean, Emory is like top of like Premier League. I'm like Division 10 near relegation. Okay, there's quite a, there's, we're quite different in the way we go. And here's one of the realities of that. I have married possibly the most servant-hearted lady I have ever met. And so each and every day of my life, here's what I am faced with. Today, will I emulate the example of the one who laid down his life for her? 
or will I wittingly or unwittingly just take advantage of her today? Grateful that she'll be busy doing all these things. Am I going to lay my life down for her? Or am I going to take advantage of her? My estimation of all the wives in this local church is you boys are married up quite a bit. What are you going to do each day then for your wife that involves sacrifice? Brothers, I want you to ask your wife in the next week two questions. I want you to create time, craft some time to talk to your wife and ask her these two questions. Number one, if you knew I wouldn't become angry nor be offended, how would you honestly evaluate my leadership of you? And don't go sulking when she says a few things. That is why you are asking. She is a helper suitable for you. Be honest with me. And then number two, what is one specific way that I could be a better leader and husband to you? Now in Proverbs 18 verse 22, it says, He who finds a good wife finds a good thing. And in Proverbs 12 verse 4, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband. You brothers have wonderful crowns. So take the time to date that crown and then ask those questions. It will help you. It will help me. And we need that. What does it look like to have Christ as supreme in our marriages? Well, for ladies, for wives, it looks like submitting to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And for husbands, it looks like loving your wives and not being harsh with them. If you are truly laying your life down for them, seeking to build them up, seeking to sow into them with gentleness and nourishment and cherishing, you will never be being harsh with them. Being harsh with a wife is simply not doing what you've been called to do. That's always going to be harsh because they need that. That's the way God's made it, by divine design. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you in all this then. Keep, keep looking up. Because we need Jesus in this, don't we? There's no way we're just going to go out that door and be sweet. I think I'm doing pretty good. No. We're all aware of errors that are in need of change. And so keep looking up to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of your faith. And for all of us, keep looking out. Because we need each other, don't we? We haven't got all this going on. We need other brothers and sisters around us to encourage us and help us. Sometimes we just haven't even got a clue what we're doing. And so we need to sit down with a pastor or a group leader and say, listen, can you help me? Because we're, we're a mess. And for all of us, may we keep looking down. Don't let culture define marriage. Let Christ define marriage. This is the truth. And the truth will set us free. So maybe we always keep looking down. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you that your word is so wonderfully clear. Lord, you call us to a high and holy calling to live for you, to use our gifts and abilities to serve you, to take the gospel out to the nations. And when it comes into the practicalities of our lives, you sit us down and hold our hand and with great clarity tell us the way it all works Lord I thank you for designing marriage 
And Lord, would you help us now then as those that you have designed? Would you help us now as creation to bow the knee to the Creator and say, Lord, have your way in our lives for my good and my spouse's good and for your glory. Help me to bow the knee to you. And would you, Savior, who is supreme in all things, be supreme in our marriages as well. In Jesus' precious name, amen.